0: Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for October 4th, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Rampant auditing by Medicare Advantage plans is occurring with alarming frequency. From New York, Rack Monitor investigative reporter Ed Roach has our lead story. Crisis standards of care is spreading like the deadly coronavirus. More hospitals are resorting to rationing care. Dega Gasquiz is in Hardstruck, Idaho with that developing story. We'll also hear from health care attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and health care attorney David Glaser. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck.
1: Good morning, everybody. Get a walk on the monitor Monday. Might there be good news on the horizon? Well, early reports indicate that a drop in the COVID 19 cases could offer signs of hope. Meanwhile, other officials say we're far from over. Cases are declining, even as hospitalizations and deaths remain high. The death toll today is more than 700,000. And as you heard, crisis standards of care are being implemented in a number of states here in the West. We'll have an update later in the broadcast. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is putting final touches on a bill that will protect consumers against so-called surprises in their medical bills. The legislation is on track to be effective January the 1st. We're monitoring this situation. And finally, the Senate last week defeated a Republican challenge to prevent President Biden's mandate for businesses with more than 100 people to show proof of vaccination or be tested regularly. We have much news reporting. We begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday.
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Position Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all, and good morning to Judy K. Um, Well, I'm sure all of you heard the news
2: about the oral antiviral medication for COVID that is soon going to the FDA for emergency use authorization. We have not seen the actual study yet, but we know the review board stopped the study early because the results were better than expected. Now that sounds great, but the scientific community is really waiting for the actual data to pass judgment. We need to see what patient population was studied, how they were monitored, what side effects occurred and so on. We also have no idea what this medication will cost and whether the government will pay for it as they do with the vaccine and other COVID treatments and how it will be distributed so that it gets to the people who need it most and not inappropriately prescribed as we saw with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and it goes without saying that if everyone gets the vaccine and we actually reach herd immunity it's unlikely you'd ever need this medication now on to more mundane things Last week, a fascinating study was published in a medical journal. The researchers looked at over 500 health systems across the country and how often patients who received primary care from that network received low-value medical care. Now, they chose 41 services as low-value, including such things as repeating a bone density scan at an interval less than two years, doing routine preoperative EKGs or stress tests doing PSAs in men over 70, doing carotid artery scans in patients with syncope, and so on. They then used a sophisticated statistical analysis to rank the health systems. They even provided a list of the rankings. Now, before you run off and download the study and the list of rankings from the handout section and search for your health system, remember that studies like this are very inexact. The patient may receive care from doctors in multiple health systems, but they can only be attributed to one. Um, if the doctor um, has a primary, care, if the patient has a primary care physician who does very little low-value care, but their specialist across town, who's affiliated with a different system, orders a bunch of low-value tests, the primary care physician's health system takes the hit. This study also uses only claims data and not chart review, so the actual indication may have been documented but not coded. Nonetheless, you should look up your healthcare system, but not until today's broadcast is over. And if you did well, go ahead and brag about it. And if you did poorly, well, you know, the data and the study methods, they were faulty. But be careful, the table is arranged from worst to best And a higher score means you had more low-value care. Now, even if you're not interested in your system's performance, you should really take a look at the list of low-value care services that are listed in the paper and keep an eye out for them in your facility and even if ordered by your doctor for you. Although you could use the tactic that
1: I use to avoid low-value care, and that's never go see a doctor. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC report is healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole.
3: Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. In today's RAC audit podcast, I'll be discussing the importance of timing. Timing is everything. Missing a deadline germane to any type of Medicare or Medicaid audit is deadly. Miss an appeal deadline by one single day and you lose your right to appeal the overpayment. If anyone has watched Shit's Creek, then you know that when Johnny and Moira Rose missed their deadline to file for and pay taxes, they lost their mansion and their money in the way of life. The same catastrophic loss can occur if a provider misses an appeal deadline. Then that provider will be up Schitt's Creek. Importantly, when it comes to Medicare appeals, your appeal is due 60 days after the reconsideration review. This is per 42 CFR, Section 405.1014, which is the request for an ALJ hearing or a review of a tick dismissal. A third-level Medicare provider appeal is considered filed upon receipt of the complete appeal at the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals not the normal standard of acceptance that an appeal is filed when you put the stamp on the envelope as in once you mail your appeal it's normally going to be retroactively filed per the date of mailing however not true for the third level medicare provider appeal it's considered filed the date of receipt also the regulatory clock starts ticking five days after the date of the reconsideration review decision because the thought is that the U.S. post office will not take more than five days to deliver the correspondence. Well, that assumption nowadays is inaccurate. The post office is really a mess and a lot of times late. More times than not, mail is received after five days. We actually had a case in which the ALJ dismissed our appeal because the post office delivered the appeal On the 61st day after the reconsideration review decision including the five days window literally the 61st day and the reason that the appeal was received on the 61st day is because the 60th day fell on a holiday or it was a weekend or maybe it was closed because of COVID I honestly cannot recall but Omaha was closed the mail delivery person had to return the next day to deliver the appeal yet our appeal was dismissed based on the U.S. Post Office not delivering it timely. We filed a motion to reconsider, but the ALJ denied, and now our chance at presenting to the ALJ was squashed. We have now appealed this ALJ denial to the Medicare Appeals Council with hope of reasonableness. We do not have a decision yet, but it certainly makes me want to say, ew, David, that's
1: you, Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was health attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the Law Firm of Practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Day Esquiza, Alan Fink, Sam David Glazer, and Rack Monitor investigator reporter Ed Roach. He's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's October the 4th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: The American College of Physician Advisors National Conference is back. The conference, titled Multifaceted Advising in an Unconventional World, takes place virtually October 18th through 20th. The event will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management and clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, C-suite leaders, and others with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is truly one of a kind and has become the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Scheduled speakers include outstanding thought leaders from the profession, as well as nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs, a medical necessity, and screening procedures. Click the invitation on the RAC Monitor homepage or go to ACPadvisors.org to register and earn up to 26 CME credits this month. Here now with the Monitor
1: Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning, and what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. It's being surprised by the no-surprise billing
4: rules. Matthew Albright and I have talked about the requirements that will take effect January 1st, but many organizations have been understandably distracted by COVID, and that January 1 date is fast approaching. Now, these rules are horribly confusing, and they're coming out in the stages. There were some new ones last week, and I'm not even going to talk about those. Every time I read these rules I start getting cranky. The complications of the rules are heightened by crummy drafting. For example, the rules apply to healthcare facilities and providers. Now, if you've listened to me over the years, you know that Medicare, or that within the Medicare program, a provider is a facility. But the government uses the term provider here to refer to professionals. That's just one of the examples where language converts a complicated regulation into a nearly incomprehensible one. So today I'm gonna to cover two points. First, who needs to worry about it? Most of the Surprise Billing Act applies to services happening at hospitals, ambulatory surgical centers, freestanding, em- and freestanding emergency rooms, and air ambulance. Uh, freestanding emergency rooms can, depending on state law, reach some urgent care facilities. I wanna emphasize that when I referred to services happening at those facilities, I'm not talking about services just provided by those facilities. The rule does apply to those entities, but if you're a medical professional who bills for services you provide in an air ambulance, hospital, ASC, or freestanding emergency room, the rules apply to you as well. Now, the goal of the rule is laudable. It's to keep patients who are obtaining out-of-network services from being surprised by the bill if they're either receiving emergency services or going to a facility that's in their insurance network. In essence, the patient's out-of-pocket liability is limited to the in-network rate for all emergency services and also for non-emergency services at those listed facilities unless the patient has agreed to be billed and is given a specific notice. Notices are the secondary I want to discuss. There are several notice provisions in the law and the rules. The notice mentioned above applies only if you seek to bill the patient for their full charges, going beyond the network rate. That provision will require to use a specific form developed by the government. But there's another notice requirement that will be substantially broader, seemingly applying to the whole industry, that will likely require all professionals professionals, and facilities to provide a good faith estimate of the expected charges when they furnish scheduled items and services to a patient. Because of the complexity of that requirement, the government recently announced that it would delay the January 1st effective date for patients who are using insurance to pay for care, but effective January 1, it will be necessary to provide patients a good faith estimate of the charges if either the patient doesn't have insurance or they're opting not to use the insurance to pay for the care. The details are to be addressed in forthcoming rulemaking, but it appears that for scheduled services, you'll have to provide notice within one business day after scheduling the encounter or the service. The notice has to be in clear and understandable language, and it has to include billing and diagnostic code. There's not a specific form that you must use for the notice, and there's not even a model form yet, but hopefully one will be developed shortly. Now, Chuck, it's rare that I end with a song that I don't know well. I've been captivated by only murders in the building. It makes me laugh, and this rule has me desperately needing some humor. One of the show's stars is Selena Gomez, who it turns out has great comedic timing and delivery, and she's got a song that summarizes the patient's perspective on the No Surprises Act, Tell Me Something I Don't Know. One last thing, Chuck, I screwed up. Today is 10 And I should have used You're C.W. Right McCall's right, Convoy as my right son. Instead, I'm just going to say, fan,
1: back on. to you, good buddy. For
0: mercy sakes alive, looks like we've got us a convoy.
1: <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer, the shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health, is Ellen Alan Fink-Samnick. Ellen also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Ellen.
5: Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. Well, World Mental Health Day is October 10th, and the funding frenzy is on. Mental health was a priority pre-pandemic, but has risen exponentially across every population especially over the last 21 months, and mostly for the most vulnerable and marginalized populations. For my colleagues in hospital emergency departments and community health centers, the situation has reached crisis proportions. Patients are waiting from days to weeks for appropriate beds and other services. These latest awards total close to $1 billion for organizations and their communities to mitigate the social determinants of mental health. First up, SAMHSA awarded over $825 million to community mental health centers around the U.S. These community-based facilities or groups of facilities provide prevention, treatment, and rehabilitation mental health services. Funding is through the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 and the Coronavirus Response and Relief Supplement Act of 2021. These grants require the centers to Develop a behavioral health disparities impact statement within 60 days of funding, and a quality improvement plan to address under-resourced populations, differences based on access, use, and outcomes of service activities. Identify methods for development of policies and procedures to ensure adherence to national standards for culturally and linguistically appropriate services in health and health care for those in the biz, those class standards. Services must include audio and audiovisual HIPAA compliant telehealth capabilities and outpatient services for resources with serious emotional disturbance, serious mental illness, substance use, and co occurring disorders. Trauma informed screening, assessment, diagnosis, and patient centered treatment planning and delivery must also be incorporated. I'll be discussing trauma-informed principles and leadership on my appearance tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday. Yes, I'll be doing dual duty this week. Next, CMS awarded $15 million to 20 states for planning grants to support expansion of community-based mobile crisis intervention services for Medicaid recipients. These services are comprised of professionals trained to escalate and treat individuals in substance use-related or behavioral health crisis then intervene with assessment and stabilizations of persons in the least restrictive settings. The goal is to divert individuals with mental illness from the jails and emergency departments. Funding is via the American Rescue Plan and will expi- expand the 24-7 delivery of mobile crisis interventions across countless states that are referenced in my upcoming article for RAC Monitor. Finally, Fifty million million was awarded by the National Institutes of Health to the University of North Texas Health Science Center at Fort Worth. The center will lead a multi-institutional coordinating center focused on community engagement, artificial intelligence, and machine learning, and health equity research. Busting the implicit bias associated with artificial intelligence is a necessity to leverage the technology and mitigate gaps in health and mental health care. More funding is on the horizon. I'll be watching closely for further awards. Now, in recognition of Mental Health Week, our Monitor Monday survey asks, is your facility program experiencing discharge or follow-up appointment delays for patients awaiting mental health treatment? Yes? No? Well, does not apply or do not know. Well, I'll be curious to see the results. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was consultant and author, Ellen Fink-Samnick. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. As you heard at the top of this broadcast, the number of states implementing crisis standards of care is increasing. Here now with the latest report is Senior Healthcare Consultant, Day Iskizia. Good morning, Dave. What's it like in your state of Idaho and elsewhere?
6: Thanks, Chuck. Community hospitals are definitely in crisis. That is the real story. With the crisis of care standards allows for rationing, it relates to saving the patients who have the greatest chance of survival. Although this is allowed in the Idaho Weekly Media updates, the two largest providers have stated, in essence, that's not occurring yet, but there's definitely a change in the normal care we would expect. So let's look at some of those stats. Ninety-seven percent of the country is rural. It represents 19 percent of the population. 1,300 critical access hospitals are under 25 beds, That then about 40 to 60 miles to the next hospital. Three-quarters of Idaho hospitals are critical access. That should tell us that these hospitals do not have staff ready to staff up for 18 months for COVID, but we also have nowhere to refer our patients to. So St. Luke's, which it was, it declared the crisis of care in mid-September, they'd hired over 800 people, but they had 400 out ill or or exposed. Idaho's positivity rate between September 19th and the 25th, 44,000 were tested, 15.4% positive. But the Health and and Welfare Department is so far behind with such volume, contact tracing is essentially non-existent. We're at 41% fully vaccinated as of October 1st. We have no mask mandates anywhere except for in Sun Valley, our resort community, which was hit very hard in the beginning of the pandemic. Our Borgs overran. They're now using freezers. As a friend of mine from New Jersey said, didn't you learn anything from us? You can figure that out yourself. Hospitals at home. This has a whole new meaning now. Our patients are sent home with self-care instructions. Many are up to 6 to 8 to 20 liters of O2 at home. So now we have a shortage of oxygen. And our family members and friends are instructed what to do to care for these patients. Many are seen a second time in the ER as their condition deteriorates. 20% of all of our cases are under 18. Our average death prior to the last two months was 72 72 years of age. It is now 58. Schools are closing and opening frequently. They try to move to remote or they just shut down. We still have many of our teachers, bus drivers, workers, students dying in quarantine, many working parents, so again, who's taking care of our kids. Then later usage is more than double than it was during the peak of COVID this winter when we didn't have vaccines. This week, we had now started asking hospice companies to start taking our patients. Probably one of the biggest hits here that would kind of make you all shudder a bit. They announced we used to have one-on-one RNs in the ICU. We're now up to one to three RNs in the ICU. And remember, what it takes to turn our patients, right? 95 to 100% was reported this weekend are unvaccinated in the ICU. When they interviewed the physician running the ICU, she said they had hope last year when they saw the vaccinations roll out. She said, this week, I see no end in sight because of the unvaccinated. Long-term care outbreaks. We had 6,500 new cases last week in 145 facilities, which is a 415 more than the previous week. So what does this really look like to our patients? No emergent surgeries are happening, no joints, no hysterectomies, no football injuries, nothing. ERs are essentially a war zone. We had a paraplegic report that he had needed to come in for a UTI. He said, I've never seen the ER like this, and I worked in the military. If you, I was in the military. If you have any doubt, come to the ER and see it yourself. We are calling all over the country to get somebody to accept our patients. We have a woman who was reported had to go to California to try to get a hysterectomy for severe endometriosis. She said, I have no family down here. I'm by myself. Why did I have to leave my community? We now have some uh, monoclonal clinics set up where patients are receiving this medication, which is surprising since they don't want to get vaccinated. Other states are now enacting this, and Chuck asked me to tell you some of the rest that's happening here. We have Alaska, who has now declared their third hospital under crisis of care standards, Anchorage, Barrow, which is a small community, in Fairbanks. These are two big hospitals, and they're doing it with the 50% fully vaccinated, but they have community spread, which is rampant. Listen to this math. 110,000 cases out of 731,000 population. They have no mass mandates either. Montana, St. Hel- uh, Helena, St. Pete's, 48% fully vaccinated. They declared it uh, in September. They said we just have, don't have enough hall space anymore. West Virginia, take a look at these are where we start looking at rural, and West Virginia has a 40% vaccin- fully vaccinated, Mississippi 43, Kentucky 52, Hawaii is 58, but remember how the landlocked they are. South Carolina, 47. Wyoming, 41. Heavily rural, lots of critical access, no place to refer patients. One of the biggest worries, the chief medical officer at St. Luke said that people will not see this as anything different in business as usual. And a last note that uh, I'll share with you before I hand it back to Chuck, this is very real when you see this happening. My niece's husband's brother died last week at 49. The family does not believe COVID is true. His parents have both now become ill. His mother was moved to ICU on Saturday. She is now on a ventilator, but she is being treated with monoclonal antibodies. She has two to three nurses needed to turn her. But the father is at home on O2 now with home health. When you look at all the resources it took to take care of these three people in this family, and, as a last thought, the remaining family is reassessing whether they should be vaccinated. Maybe that will happen cheering on those heroes in our hospitals every day, Chuck. Back to you.
1: Thanks, Dave, very much. That was De Eskizia. Day is the president of AR Systems and is a resident of Idaho, and we wish her and her family the very best during these very difficult times. Coming up next, the surprising results of today's Monitor Money Listener Survey and later in the broadcast, the rapid auditing by Medicare Advantage auditors.
0: It's our lead story, but first this message. <music> Automate denial workflows and simplify audit processes from a single platform with Refine from Vine Medical. Designed specifically for healthcare, the cloud-based Refine platform delivers denials management in a seamless application. The Refine Audit solution for government audits enables you to receive and respond to Medicare documentation requests electronically. Eliminate lost audit notifications and ADRs sent by mail, saving time and money. Improve timely filing of audit responses. Improve payment responses times for audited claims. Manage audits through a single cloud-based solution. Consolidate software tools eliminating the need for separate data and screen scraping utilities. And enhance the security of audit response data with electronic delivery. Learn more about the Refine platform at VINEMedical.com. And save the date for their upcoming webinar with Rack Monitor on November 9th.
1: Now, as the results of today's monitor money listener survey. Once again, here is Alan Fink Samnick.
5: Well, thank you, Chuck. And uh, what were the results of this week's survey? Most interesting is your facility program experience in discharge or follow-up appointment delays for patients awaiting mental health treatment? Absolutely. Most of 35% of our listeners said yes. Very few. uh, Just 5% said no. About 14% said this doesn't apply, and uh, less than half really were not sure about those numbers, but I guarantee you they're going to be taking a large chunk of staff time and your budgets. So, Time to get in the know. Back to you. Thanks, Ellen, very much.
1: Rampant auditing by Medicare Advantage plans is a constant unwelcome occurrence, so much so that we ask Rack Monitor investigator reporter Ed Roach to look into the situation. Here now is Ed Roach. Good morning, Ed.
7: Hey, Chuck. OIG is going after Medicare Advantage plans, gaming the system. A patient is assigned a diagnosis from the chart only without linking to the record of services provided. That's a loophole. In 2017, CMS paid out $6.7 billion based only on chart reviews. Medicare Advantage cost $314 billion, 40% of Medicare. 894 plans serve 28 million citizens. $28,000 $28,000 per enrollee. Symphony operates 92 plans, followed by UnitedHealth, 78, Humana, 47, Anthem, 42. The five largest parents account for 16 million, or 56% of all enrollees. So Medicare Advantage is an oligopoly. It enjoys unique billing. This model matches procedure codes with a hierarchical condition category. HCCs are bundles of medical codes linked to a specific diagnosis. There are 72,000 ICD codes. A subset are simplified into 254 HCCs. Each HCC has a monthly base rate. What the plan gets paid is adjusted up and down depending on a risk factor. If an 84-year-old male has diabetes and the base rate is 800, if the risk is 0.5, the plan gets $400 per month. But risk is adjusted by coefficients for demographics, plan type, diagnosis, severity, and drugs. 2,561 coefficients reissued each year. DOJ filed a False Claims Act suit against Anthem for falsely certifying the accuracy of its diagnosis data. This led to 345,000 in overpayments, extrapolated to 3.5 million. The OIG looked at Humana. Of 1,525 enrollees, 203 were not validated. Overpayment was 198 million. The defense, Anthem argued some diagnosis codes were subject to different documentation standards, so the audit was inconsistent with the Social Security Act's actuarial equivalence mandate. It was skewed improperly towards identifying overpayments. Sampling was selective, not random. A different confidence interval should have been used. Humana hired an outside coding team to review problem HCCs. When coding reviewers disagreed, a physician was used as a tiebreaker. Humana argued a code should be validated if one coder agrees. It questioned if OIG coders were certified by the American Association of Professional Coders. It also argued actuarial equivalence. Most of these defenses are not worth the legal fees paid for them. Medicare Advantage plans are an auditing paradise. HCCs, risk factors, and thousands of coefficients, each changing every year. So bloody confusing. Unless it uses a good team of mathematical statisticians, no provider defense will crack the risk factors and coefficients. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor Investigator Reporter Ed Roach. He was calling in from New York, where he is the Director of Business Intelligence for Barraclue, New York, LLC. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday, and we thank you so very much for being with us today. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, De Esquizia, Alan Fink, Sam David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Rack Monitor Investigator Reporter Ed Roach, who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very
0: much, everybody. Have a great day. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.